10 p.m. And we are Graphic Policy Radio, bringing you our regular podcast about the Venture Brothers. Uh, this is Ilana, your host, joined as ever on our Graphic Policy Radio Venture Brothers podcast with Stephen Adwell. Say hello. Hello. Um, so thank you guys for your support. We've been getting lots of listens, and we're keeping it up uh, as long as you guys are listening. Uh, tonight we'll be discussing episode four of season six. The name of this episode is Rapacity in Blue. Uh, really enjoyed this week's episode. I'm really psyched to talk about it. Stephen, do you want to take us on a little bit of a recap? Sure. So uh, the episode uh, – oops, excuse me. Um, the episode starts with uh, Rusty Venture being woken up by J.G.'s alarm, which reminds him that he's due at the Science Now conference and he needs a new invention to show off. After finding out that he's a bit behind the curve science-wise, he has Pete White and Billy Quiz Boy present their new creations. Uh, Pete White's noiseless washing machine, the Whisper Washer, gets nixed because of Rusty's experience flogging a nuclear-powered vacuum cleaner, as does his uh, suggestion to use static electricity boots, shuffle dynamism to power <laughs> buildings. Uh, Billy's liver-recreating Prometheus drug also gets nixed because it won't stop creating livers, so instead they decide to go with the God Gas, a chemical spray that induces religious, religious fervor in mice, which they intend to test on Dr. Venture's latest arch, the Horangutang, uh, my favorite kind of you know, new, new character design for this episode. Um, yeah. Beats the crap out of Vatred and gets into a bro-off with Brock that gets interrupted by Warriana. That's a really hard name to to say, by the way. It is, uh, yeah. Mariana and Brock get into a shouting-slash-flirting match, which distracts Brock from giving Hank sex advice. But when the god gun misfires, Brock takes a dose right to the face, which gives him the confidence he needs to go over to Mariana's apartment and demand to be dominated. Meanwhile, after a good bit of internal struggle about his dad's superheroic, or is it supervillainous past, and hitting the limit of his patience with guild bureaucracy, the Monarch and Henchman 21 decide to take up the mantle of the Blue Morpho and Kano and hunt down the people ahead of him on the roster. After dealing with traffic in the Lincoln Tunnel, the new Blue Morpho and Kano save Billy Quizboy from Horangutang, who dies accidentally. In the process, however, a drugged-out Billy Quizboy thinks that Rusty Venture is the Blue Morpho, while Rusty seems to recognize the Blue Morpho, hopefully not from his dad's quote-unquote special movies. Fired up by their experience of superheroing, despite some setbacks, you know, like their car getting towed, the Monarch and 21 arrive home to find out that Dr. the Mrs. Monarch is really pissed off that the Monarch skipped date night. So, initial impressions. Ilana, what do you think? I really liked this episode. Um, I felt, like, revitalized after I watched it. Like, I wanted to watch it immediately after I was done. Um, so okay. that's a good sign. I, mm -hmm. I was sad I didn't have, like, any nerdy music references to make. But other than that, I'm very happy. Yeah, this one really played, you know, pretty close to just the sort of comic book uh, references. I, I really like this episode. Um, you know, there's a few plot lines that, like, you know, I think this is part of my frustration with the fact that the, you know, season is foreshortened. There's a couple plot lines that I would like to see a little bit more of, like, you know, what's going to happen with Hank and uh, uh, Serena? Why is it that we still haven't seen Dean actually at college? That's yeah. Kind of, uh, but, you know, I loved pretty much everything going on with the Monarch, everything going on with, uh, you know, the, the science gang. Um, and I'm really interested by this new relationship that Brock and his neighbor are in. Indeed, indeed. Um, so let's let's go into the references. So the you know we start with the obviously the title of this episode is a play on uh, George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blues. Uh, excuse me, in Blue, which you know was supposed to be a, a musical portrait of New York, uh, even though unfortunately most people associate it with uh, is it United Airlines. Yeah, United Airlines uses it as a song. I was just going to say, for anybody who doesn't know the song that we're talking about, you have to go listen to it because it is one of the most important pieces of music ever composed. Um, and, yeah, it's used in the soundtrack of For Manhattan, you know, the Woody Allen movie. Like, basically, tons of movies that are set in New York City, this is the soundtrack that they use to indicate that they're in New York City. Um, 
so it was it was an interesting choice for a very New York City focused episode. Yeah, um, and you know an, another sort of uh, interesting uh, sort of ongoing reference is this whole thing about JJ as Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. because you know the the this kind of conference trade show um, that they that sort of sets up uh, Rusty's storyline for this episode really, I mean, is kind of clearly referencing the kind of Apple product launch events um, and the sort of, you know, the kind of combination of like self-importance and ultimate emptiness that's inside those things. Yeah. I think that's an excellent description. Um, also, like, that, you know, did I, it's interesting yeah, sorry, that e- it's funny that even the great Rusty Venture um, uh, doesn't know how to reprogram his alarm clock. Yeah, um, it's that you know, there's kind of an ongoing thing here about like Rusty dealing with uh, technology and science, which is mm-hmm. that you know he's got certain very clear ideas about what he wants it to be, um, but other stuff he's clearly kind of behind the times, like. For example, he doesn't know what a Segway is. <laughs> um, another thing that I thought was interesting, the name of the conference uh, is called Science Now, which, you know, I did a quick Google, and that's actually uh, the name of a science magazine that PBS's Nova puts out. So hmm. maybe they have a conference in the Venture Brothers universe. I don't know. But it definitely sounds like a trade show kind of thing. Like the the name sounds very realistic. Yeah, I think it, it also was making me think that they're trying to get around a, a trademark or copyright issue. Like, they wanted to say TED Talk, but they couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's let's move on to the 21 and the Monarch. Oh, um, so, you know, it's so funny. Like, you here. actually didn't mark this in your show notes because I think you took for granted that some people might not recognize it. But the casual wear T-shirt that um, 21 is wearing has – a geometric shape on it, which is a 20-sided dice like you would use to play Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, it's a D20. Um, And, uh, oh, so, you know, we then go to, uh, you know, downstairs in the basement uh, where it turns, you know, you mentioned that the crime computer is is the most Batman thing ever. I mean, it really is. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, obviously doesn't exist within... Uh, the Green Hornet's, you know, milieu because computers didn't exist back when he was a thing. Um, speaking of kind of comics references, uh, one that actually made me do a spit take was the mention that his dad's comics were full of uh, Hostess fruit pie ads because Marvel Comics used to absolutely plaster their comics, especially in the like 60s, 70s, and 80s. With mm-hmm. ads for Hostess fruit pies, which always involved these like weird mini comics in which villains would be inexplicably thwarted by, you know, the love of host- Hostess fruit pies or sometimes Twinkies as well. Yeah, and it was it was, but also like it was frequently. Um, oh my God, I want to. It's the the the, froze, the freezing stuff villain from the Flash was doing one of DC comics. Um, yeah, I don't think this was just a Marvel thing. I think this yeah, was a comic book like, thing. It was, it, was, it was always like featuring characters that were not the ones that were in the actual comic that I was reading at the time as a kid. So, I, And this was before the internet, so I'd be like, why is there an app for fruit pies with characters who are clearly from some comic, but they're not from the one that I'm reading in this? It's very surreal, and it's such a nostalgic thing. I think they actually even made a line of toys based around the Hostess Fruit Pie superhero ads because nostalgia <laughs> is yeah. king. Um, so, uh, Dr. and Mrs. The Monarch is going to miss date night because she's got a board meeting on Meteor Majeure, which I guess is the secret base of Force Majeure, who is one of the uh, Council of Thirteen. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, it, it's possible this is an asteroid m reference although you know yeah i'm not a, so yeah for, yeah asteroid m was magneto's asteroid base in space until it got brought down and then got turned into the mutant homeland but I, i'm not aware of like asteroid headquarters is predating asteroid m that i can think of so let me know if we're wrong send us an um actually as they would say 
Uh, but I think that that yeah. is the one it's based on, yeah. Um, um, I know Dr. Mrs. The Monarch's costume on this, like, I really wanted to get more concrete about who exactly it was referencing, but it's just so much of, like, a standard women's military chic dress with that little, like, peaked hat a la M. Bison from Street Fighter, but it's also, like, just, like, a military general's hat. I, I want it to be evoking something more specific, and it's not. I think it's just sort of general in that way. Well, I mean, you know, I always think of that stuff as somewhat echoing kind of Nazi chic. Because the yeah. whole kind of patent leather, you know, that's very, you know, it, it, and especially, you know, given the way that um, I think it was, you know, episode one of the new season, like, really tied that to, um, like, you know, like, sex, that, you know, I was almost like this reminds me of um, uh, uh, the Night Porter or something like that. Like, oh yeah, that's a thought. Because um, you know she doesn't seem to be wearing anything under that um, besides you know underwear. Yeah, it's like a it's a, well it's a it's a jacket dress which like is actually a thing. Mhm. Um, but but yeah, I totally hear you on the Night Porter thing. Um, and why not reference art movies as much as possible? Yeah. Uh, uh, so the Phantom Limb. Phantom Limb. So he's been around for a long time, but we haven't actually talked about his origins in this. Um, Phantom Limb is obviously based on the Phantom, who was a pulp hero who later became a comics character. He's actually having he, his IP got bought by some other company recently, and he's back in the comics again. But I first got encountered him on a cartoon when I was a kid. There was like an mm-hmm. '80s cartoon series. Yeah, well, you know, there's also, given that he's also got this kind of, like, family legacy thing going on, but there's also the character Fantomas, mm-hmm. who was, like, a French gentleman thief sort of supervillain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's very much they're kind of taking, like, the name and the kind of general, you know, what's he doing from the French thing, but, like, the purple costume, that is clearly the Phantom. Yeah, like the costume is like literally the Phantom's costume. He was one of those right. su- superheroes. He's like the white guy who is in Africa and is somehow the best at everything. Highly problematic. Yeah, he's got the skull ring and and the purple jumpsuit and gun. I was like super into the purple jumpsuit and skull ring as a kid. I was like that was definitely the superhero costume that I wanted. Yeah, and who was it who played him in the that really terrible bad movie? movie? I don't know. It wasn't me. That's where they went wrong. We can look it up later. Uh, it wasn't Elon Eleven as oh. a child. Oh dear, it was Billy Zane. Oh God! See, I told you it would have been better to cast me as an eight-year-old over Billy Zane. Like I would be way yeah. more believable in that role. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, uh, Pete White's invention, the Whisper Washer, uh, is actually a real brand of mop. Um, and it's kind of funny because it seems to be the only, like, actually commercially viable thing, you know, of all of those, but it clearly doesn't meet uh, Dr. Venture's high standards when it comes to impracticality and, you know, science for science's sake. Yeah, it's not beautiful in and of itself. Right. So uh, this is in the Meadowlands. Alana, do you want to take this one? Yeah, the Meadowlands is an arena in Jersey, it's where the giants throw the egg-shaped handball thing at each other, and um, sometimes they win at the hand egg ball-shaped thing. <laughs> okay, we just lost any listeners who might be sports fans. Whatever. Um, Go okay, home. So the, so the Prometheus drug. Uh, Prometheus is the uh, Greek her- uh, tragic hero slash titan he gets his liver eaten every day by eagles and then it, or vultures, depending on the translation, and then it regrows every day. Uh, there is also a real world, and he gave fire to, to humans representing knowledge. Um, so, you know, Prometheus is a, is a uh, uh, name, you know, logo, whatever, uh, that a lot of companies use. There's, in fact, a real-life li- uh, Prometheus Labs that produces pharmaceuticals. Um, and there's also a band called Prometheus. Hello? Yeah, I, I don't think it's the band. Like, looking at the demographically, they're, like, contemporary, and I don't I don't think that that's who they're thinking of. 
one of the, my thoughts is that since the drug keeps you, just makes you keep on growing more and more livers, it's kind of like the ice nine of livers from Cat's Cradle. Uh, explain. Well, ice nine turns all the water and the earth into ice, and that's how the world ends. I think that this liver drug could turn all the matter in the world into livers. I think it just makes people explode, or mice explode. Rather. It makes mice explode, um, but it could turn all of reality into livers. Sure. Uh, so, uh, moving on, my favorite invention out of all of these, and the one that leads to, I think, one of the best sight gags, certainly of this season, but quite possibly of um, you know all time in this show, uh, the god gas. So, you know, in real-world science, many, many neuroscientists, neurobiologists, psychologists, etc., have done experiments uh, inducing and studying religious experiences, usually using some form of electromagnetic stimulation or psychotropic drugs to activate particular parts of the brain and produce specifically religious experiences. And in this case, it makes mice reenact first the Ten Commandments uh, with Billy Quizboy's The Golden Calf, which was just like a hilarious detail. Uh, the Crucifixion, which, you know, that was dark. Um, and then there was one that I really couldn't tell what it was because it's like three mice with torches going up to a mice that is like sitting on, you know, a throne of skulls, uh, you know, with, you know, heads on spikes around him. And I was like, could this be Daniel in the lion's den? But, mm-hmm. you know, it's not particularly visually evocative of that. Um, you know, might be a witch burning. I really wasn't sure where yeah. exactly they were going with that. I wasn't either. But I was laughing too hard to really care because it's both just a ridiculous image and I love the fact that no one acknowledges it. They walk away. They do not bother to check what the actual impact on these on these rodents is. Yeah, it's like such a great example of how little they actually give a fuck about the impact. Um, let me see what's next. Oh, okay. So we then go back to um, to Newark, mm-hmm. and uh, we get an extended Star Wars gag, which I really really liked, where. Uh, 21 takes on the role of Yoda, and we get the return of 24, or at least his voice, his voice yeah. in the role of Obi-Wan, um, which makes monarch, the monarch, Luke Skywalker, uh, going down into the dark side cave in Dagobah. But they literally use the dialogue from the movie, guys, including yeah. the, he's not ready, or was I, was I ready? Like, it's literally yeah. the dialogue from the movie, it, and it works and, pretty well. And, you know, it makes complete sense because, of course, Gary would, you know, like that's how he would think through this situation. Um, it's also kind of funny if you think about it because, you know, for for those of you who've seen uh, The Force Awakens, like this is the monarch grappling with the temptations of, you know, the good guys of the light as opposed to the dark side, which, you know, was the case in The Empire Strikes Back. Unfortunately for the monarch, he finds uh, some home movies from his dad featuring his dad and Dr. Jonas Venture and uh, Senior and Jill St. John and Stella Stevens. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, I'm so glad we figured out exactly who they were because that's like important historical information. Yes. And also, you know, it it sets up that both are of consenting age at the time in the 70s. Yes. So oh, sorry, we didn't even explain the context. Okay, so those are those are famous porn actresses, sex symbols, like, um, from the 70s. Well, not just and, porn actresses. I mean, you know, uh, Jill St. John was a, a Bond girl. Yeah. Know, Stella Stevens was on Fantasy Island. Like, Fantasy you know, Island, they were... Yeah. Sorry. You know. Like, um, other kinds of actresses, sorry. But, like, what I thought was, um, what I thought was, like, really... I don't know. I just sort of seemed like I when I when I took a look, there there was one piece of information coming up where that I like couldn't place on this episode, uh, which we'll get into in a minute. So I was checking around on some of the other websites that cover the show. Like literally nobody else put in the time to identify the actresses there, which is weird because they're actually mentioned. 
in the show. Yeah, and it's funny because it's not the first time that they've been mentioned on the show. Like exactly, they've mentioned Jill St. John before. They've mentioned Stella Stevens before. Um, interestingly, you know, one I I did a little bit of research and I found out that the two of them used to simultaneously date the same guy sometimes. Uh, famously, Sidney Korshak was uh, a labor lawyer and gangland uh, figure from Chicago. So that kind of that never happens to up. any of the labor lawyers that I know. Yeah, well, you know, the labor lawyers you know aren't mobbed up. Um, That's true. <laughs> so, you know, other stuff going on with this video. I mean, we'll get into this more when we get to sort of the themes of stuff. But you you mentioned that you know, uh, the Blue Morpho Senior kind of looks a lot like Tony Stark in the seventies. He does, like the way he's drawn there with his mustache. Um, I mean, he talks that he's not like a great scientist in this, but he is like tinkering around with devices that he's purchased, I suppose. His whole manner just seems very Tony Stark, but his looks too. Well, I think, I think it's also like a, um, like what kind of science we're talking about, because he's talking about that, like he's investing in video cameras and that's the way, like that video is the way of the future. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Jonas Venture builds space stations. You know, it's it's kind of similar. It's sort of a 70s version of the whole, like, J.J. versus Rusty thing. Oh, yeah, that's a great point, with one of them being consumer-oriented and the other being, like, crazy visionary stuff. Right. Um, um, yeah. And I also know, just wanted to give that... a shout-out again for, like, Paul F. Tompkins' amazing voice acting in that role. I oh, think yeah. he is He's great. so good. I also wanted to credit, again, the artist who worked on that scene because the back seam of um, – the double back seam of – Blue Morpho's sports jacket is like so period appropriate that that actually like distracted me from noticing the other stuff that was happening in the scene. Yeah. Um, um, the tailoring, the, the fake, that, the animated tailoring on this show is second to none. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you know I noticed uh, or that sort of sprung out to me is just like the Blue Morpho's interest in doing like, you know, home amateur porn it mm-hmm. reminded me a lot of like Bob Crane from uh, Hogan's Heroes, or specifically Greg Kinnear's performance as uh, Bob Crane in uh, what was that movie called? I think it was called like Autofocus. Oh yeah, I wanted to see it and haven't, but yes, I believe that is it's, right. It's not bad. It's not bad. Um, you know, certainly it's kind of an interesting take on like the intersection between like Americana and sexuality. Um, so the orangutan. Yeah, that's the thing up. I was looking to see if anybody else figured out because I'm having a hard time here. Um, yeah, I yeah. Mean, he's a great character design, and like he's funny, and I love the fact that he never really like. He, I mean, he beats up Vatred, but he seems like his major shtick is just like doing that kind of like you know, come at me, bro, sort of thing. Yeah, haranguing people. I, yeah, exactly. That's what like he does. visually, like you know, the, I I just he, he does evoke an orangutan, but he looks a little bit like Calabac, maybe Dark Side's son. But he's just yeah. Not, some people said said Sabretooth, but I don't really no, see that. That's delusional. Those people are wrong, and they should feel ashamed. Like I think Calabac is a stretch. It's just like Calabac also kind of similarly just sort of like shows up in the middle of Manhattan one day and screams until somebody fights him. Which is not something I've seen Sabretooth doing. Um, Calabac yeah. is kind of I mean, of Sabretooth like usually bit... starts fights by trying to murder people. Exactly. With his feet, with his with his fangs. And, and sorry, not fangs, with his pointy teeth and claws. gnashing claws. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, even the Calabac thing was random. I think it just like, if you've read the exact specific issues of Fourth World Jack Kirby comics, then maybe it evokes that to you. But I don't think yeah. that it's really a strong connection. I think this might've just been something that they came up with whole cloth, but let us know if you figured it out. Okay. So, uh, I missed this reference. Uh, Mr. Feeney from boys meets world. When did that oh, happen? Yeah. Like it's literally something that Manolo says. So, um, doc. Oh, right. Yeah. The monarch it's is when... like, t- talking about all his problems. And Manolo says, what about Mr. Feeney from boy meets world, which is like, a, like it was like one of the eighties sitcoms. Yeah, I mean, I know Boy Meets World. I, I watched a lot of it when I was a kid. Oh, I don't know why I did? Um, but I, I just <laughs> there wasn't cable. Um, 
speaking of 80s references, uh, you know, yeah. uh, when they're talking about uh, the aggro crag. So when, when, they're at, yeah, when they're in the basement um, and, Mon- you know, right after the conversation, Monarch runs down to the basement to tell uh, 21 that he's decided he is going to go as the blue Morpho. And he's like, I'm going to use your idea. And 21 says, you're going to pile all the stuff up and climb it like the aggro crag. Now, I could tell that was a reference, but I couldn't tell it was a reference to what. Turns out it's from a thing you would have to use, uh, have to climb up in the Nickelodeon Guts game show. That was on in the 80s? Do you have? 90s. Yeah, 90s. And so that's what he was referring to. Yeah. And they decided, sorry. Well, also, didn't, um, what was the thing that you had to climb at the end in American Gladiators? The bodies of your victims? No, 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 but there was like, you also had to climb up a mountain thing while people were shooting stuff at you. Yeah, like a wall. But that wasn't called the aggro crag. No, it wasn't. But what the hell was it? I can't help you. I'm sorry. All right. I'm going to Google this while while you talk about the next uh, reference. So um, there, when, when, when they announce that they are going to go as Blue Morpho and Kano, you get a bit of animation of rainbows coming in from different sides of the screen and, star, and starburst colors. And you get the voiceover. And that is straight out of the new event. That's straight out of the all-new Super Friends Hour. Um, which was the Hanna-Barbera shitty uh, Justice League cartoon of the 70s um, that had very similar interstitials. like, And even the introduction of the characters is very much done in that style. Um, it, it's, we, you know, people of our generation, Stephen, we are so lucky that we grew up in, in the age of the Batman, the animated series, and not in the age of the all-new Super Friends Hour. Right. Okay, so it was the... The um, I'm misremembering the American Gladiators. There was a pyramid, not a mountain. Ha. Uh-huh. Okay. Um. So yes, we we live in an age of superior cartoons. Um. So uh, the monarch in the car. Van Dyke beard uh, yes. having to be uh trimmed because it's too trendy anyway. Well, yeah, uh, he, it's it's you know I mean twenty one is right that like that's how you could absolutely without a doubt tell that it was the monarch. But I appreciated the joke that, like, his exaggerated facial hair is, like, hipster now. Um, yeah, I've however, never seen anyone take a Van Dyke to the same curly extent. No, he's um, as, I've seen ones that are almost as long as his in real life, absolutely. But it's, yeah. yeah. But I, I also appreciated him saying he was going to donate it to Locks of Love. But in case folks yes. were wondering, they don't, take, they don't take donations of hair of that nature. Yes, um, uh, it's head hair. I have donated to Locks of Love when I have trimmed my uh, ponytail from a uh, middle of the back down to something more reasonable length uh, before. Well, so, yeah, if you're getting your hair cut, do it. I, they only take virgin hair, though, and my hair has been dyed rainbow colors since I was in seventh grade or so, so ah, I will not be perfect. donating. Um, next, New York stuff. Yes. So, um, you know, as is usual this season, they're making various New York jokes. <laughs> um, you know, typically, uh, you know, uh, the the Monarch and 21 get into a fight over uh, transportation into New York City because they've decided not to take the path train because when you have a cool car with machine guns and rockets, you know, you got to do that. But, um, uh, you know, the Monarch's right. You never take the Lincoln Tunnel. Uh, traffic is always miserable. I know. I was groaning before he even did it. Like, why would you do that? Um, you know, and I'm just very glad that, you know, most commuters taking the Lincoln Tunnel do not have access to rockets. Um, at the same time, you know, I'm a little confused by uh, uh, the uh, by 21 saying that they shouldn't take the Triborough because, I mean, you can get to Manhattan by the Triborough. I mean, so you can, exactly. but it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, I know. It was just because he like he he said that like that that goes to Queens. Um, it it goes other places. It's it's Triborough. Um, also, uh, when they were complaining about uh, metered parking, yes, three fifteen an hour is in fact the statutory rate for parking below Ninety Sixth Street in Manhattan, huh. uh, and. 
unfortunately for them, uh, they get their car towed, which means they're going to have to pay a lot, lot more. Just at professional advice, people, there is no reason to ever have a car south of 140th Street in Manhattan. Like, just don't do it. Don't do it. it it's an act of hindrance, basically. Uh, so that does it for references for this episode. Um, unfortunately, not so much uh, music stuff, but, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed for next episode. I know. I'll be uh, more useful. So, yeah. So uh, let's talk super science. Uh, a lot going on this episode. I really loved, um, you know, Rusty's speech about, you know, you know, tickle my brain, you know, stick your hand up my ass, you know, et cetera. That, that, oh, uh, God. Got, you know, that got Billy to put down his uh, his breakfast burrito in, in disgust. Uh, but yeah, we got some we got some actual new super science, which I was uh, thrilled by. You know, they're not going through JJ's uh, morgue anymore. They're coming up with their own stuff. So, what did you think of their various projects? We've got the Whisper Washer, Shuffle Dynamism, the Prometheus Drug, and God Gas. You know, I think it really shows how much Billy is like the only person with morals really in that crew right now and the only person who's yeah. really coming up with anything innovative. Um, you know, Billy yeah. is the one who has qualms about all this. Billy is sick of killing mice all the time. I think his voice time, acting was just really good in this episode too. Thank oh, you, yeah. Doc yeah, Venture. Right. Sorry, uh, uh, Doc but, you know, I think you also get that, uh, you know, the Billy – believes in scientific rigor. He's not going to put the uh, the Prometheus drug out there while he knows that it, you know, uncontrollably creates livers. And he <laughs> wants to do, you know, testing on the God gas before they, yeah. they shop it around at a conference. He didn't That's even want to test it on the villain, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, God, the human subjects, you know, committees would have a field day with the idea of, you know, involuntarily using arch enemies as human subjects. Um, but, you know, we also saw this episode, like, you know, speaking of the theme of failure as well, like, man, Rusty is really falling back into some bad habits when it comes mm-hmm. to ethics. Like, you know, shuffle dynamism, as, as Pete White pointed out, is pretty much slave labor. And Rusty's response is, well, we can work around that. Um, you know, likewise, he's not, uh, you know, podcast producing religious you know, feelings is not enough. He wants mind control gas because there's no ethical problems with mind control. Not at all. Yeah, no, it's it's all very farcical. I mean, this is the kind of thing where if he brought it to market, they would be upset that he did so publicly, you know? Yeah, and, you know, the, the Prometheus drug, like, if they could fix the side effects, you know, that's, that's a hell of a product. Um you know, the God gas, like, even if you fix it, you know, I think it's like ultimately, you know, it's it's a bad thing. It's something you don't want to exist. Yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, super science, you know, one thing that I thought was interesting in this episode, like, Dean is barely in the episode. But he does seem to have a knack for animal psychology. Yeah, and, he's reading all their body language in ways that make me wonder if that gray goo had, like, really expanded his brain. Or, I mean, you know, maybe this is his direction that he's going to go to in college. Like, we haven't seen him in class yet. Um, but, but I really you know, love him would... reading the mice's body language, especially because I feel like, I mean, I don't know that much about my psychology, but it seemed right. Like, yeah, I buy it. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, you know, if Dean is going down the, like, Peter Parker route up at Stuyvesant University, um, you know, he needs to get bit by a radioactive something. Oh, God, I don't want him to have mouse powers. That would be so sad. That's just like, that's just not the know. kind of powers you want. If they're building <laughs> towards like a, a pizza rat joke, I will be a little bit disappointed, I have to say. Oh, God, now I want them to be building towards a pizza rat joke. Why do you say these things? <laughs> um, yeah. So super so, science uh, and ethics yeah. do not mix. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, of super stuff, let's talk super business. Super business. So this is, yeah. So this is the episode where the monarch finally crosses over to the other side, despite saying, I am not a good guy, period. 
like guild bureaucracy is ultimately what pushes him over the edge that like he does not like filling out forms. It's, we're back to that sort of arch for arch's sake kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, they've, they've talked about, you know, for some time, like the institutionalization of superheroing and supervillainy being like simultaneously this thing that like prevents death, right? You know, it keeps the body count down, but it's also kind of, you know, artistically hollow. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I really related to the monarch. Paperwork is always the last thing to push me over into deciding to just not deal with something. Um, right. Um, and you know, he for all that he says he's not a good guy, he seems to enjoy himself immensely. He really does. He, he yeah. I think he partially like he it's, it's he's he's a good guy in a campy way, so he's like really doing it over the top. So he feels like he's acting yeah. in a new kind of role. I think. Um. And I also just think that, like, he needed to sort of break free, and that gave him the opportunity to. Yeah, and, you know, for him, it's a kind of a transgressive thing. Yeah. Like, he's putting on a different kind of costume. He's going around in public. He's calling people citizen. You know, this is like, you know, the whole kind of thing about, like, costume and carnival as, like, inversion and, you know, controlled disorder kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, I think this is ultimately going to cause a big... I think this is going to be, you know, central to his... Uh, and we'll speak about this a little bit later, but, like, his breakup with Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch is ultimately... Uh, yeah. Like, she has become the embodiment of bureaucratic villainy. She is um, the queen of lawful evil. She is the most yeah. lawful evil of them all. Um, and I would also like to see her, like, you know, get more active this season. Um, you know, we've got this whole undercurrent of, like, the Phantom Limb and Wide Whale kind of making these power – and um, Copycat making these power plays. And, like, I really want her to step up and, like, you know, God damn it, take the reins, become the sovereign. Um, yeah. You no, know, it's true. I think it's bullshit that, like, you know, when there's finally a woman in a leadership position, everything is being run by council rather than by a lone, strong individual. Yeah, although, should be you know, her. although that is kind of rooted in her characters. Like, her whole shtick is that, like, she's amazingly competent, but she also has this, like, huge self-confidence issue, which is why, like, she's always been number twoing instead of mm-hmm. not in that way. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. That's that's a fear she has, and she even explains why she didn't want to do her own solo thing. She couldn't control her murderous moppets and all that. Like, yeah, yeah that's well, true. Well, you know, she, you know, she's she's clearly blind to their nature. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, but you I like know, your, you know, you wanted to raise the whole question of the monarch coming to terms with his father being a good guy, bad guy, and like the only way yeah. he was really able to do that is by concluding that his dad was not really a good guy. So you sort of get into this whole question of, like, the good guys who kill and, like, how do you define them, the superheroes that kill? Because, you know, and this gets us back to, like, the Green Hornet, who is the inspiration for the Blue Morpho. The Green Hornet shtick was that he was a superhero who pretended to be a mobster. And, like, he would get in close with criminal gangs and, like, infiltrate them and, you know, then, you know, take them down while sort of pretending that this was kind of, you know, uh, you know, turf war, basically. But then, like, you know, leave them tied up or dead, you know, with incriminating evidence for the cops to find. So, you know, the Blue Morpho, both sort of father and son, seem to have this sort of thing where they're, like, you know, very much liminal figures who are, you know, kind of uh, between, you know, and especially are viewed by the public. Like the Blue Morpho senior mentions that the newspapers think that he's a crazy bad guy. And the monarch definitely, you know, seems to have kind of stepped into those shoes, especially because he's he's just broken or he's just crossed a big line. He's killed an arch enemy. Uh-huh. That's something that the heroes aren't supposed to do in the world of the Venture Brothers. Like that's a no-no yeah. uh, for the Guild of Calamitous Intent and OSI. I mean, he's killed people as a bad guy, even, but this is different. You know, we were well, brainstorming also, a bit. That was, that was kind of a sign that, like, he doesn't fit necessarily within the system. He, yeah. You know, 
came face to face with Dr. Dugong and blew his head off with a rocket launcher. Yep. Or or was it a flamethrower? I can't remember. Anyway, um, you know, and that is going to have repercussions this season. And now he's killed somebody as a superhero, and I think that's again going to have ramifications. We were discussing superheroes that kill people because we were just looking about other inspirations, you know, beyond just the, the blue, the Green Hornet. We were talking about the Punisher. Golden Age Batman and the Shadow, actually, the Shadow, of course, being the inspiration for pretty much all the dark superheroes who had no powers but were just like super competent, like Batman. Yeah, and um, you know, who back in the day used to have guns, like before yeah. their super strength. Well, that's what I was saying is Golden, Golden Age Batman, like, shot people and whatnot. It isn't just something he, Neil Adams invented in his fever like, dream of a comic. Their neck? Uh, probably. Like, by kicking it. I think that was I, I, in his first issue. It's like he swings in on a bat line and like breaks someone's neck with his foot. Yes, that's um, true. I was making a Neil Adams uh, Batman Odyssey joke right now, though. I was just saying this uh, isn't just something that Neil Adams came up with in the Batman Odyssey fever dream. It is something uh, from the gold, from Golden Age Batman. But um, I think that like there's definitely, I think, a good comics conversation to be had around what do you call these so-called heroes who kill people. And I'll tell you what yeah. Spider-Man calls them. Spider-Man calls them bad guys, and then he has to, like, beat them up in extended fight Right, teams. and, you know, I think this is a conversation that we're going to start to have a lot, especially when Daredevil Season 2 starts up on Netflix and we, you know, have him fighting the Punisher. Yeah, fuck. Uh, okay. Hello? Yep, can you hear me? Uh, you, you clipped out of there for, like, a second. Oh, I said, fuck the Punisher. And then I said, gotcha. anyway. <laughs> okay, uh, so... Uh, another thing, Billy thinks that the blue morpho is rusty, so there's, you know, some interesting stuff going on there with secret identities. Uh, you mentioned something that I thought was really clever, which is this whole thing about retailing superhero costumes that don't fit. Yeah. Right. So as soon as as soon as Kano and um and, and blue morpho get into costume, they realize that their outfits don't fit, which makes sense because. They're not the same stature as either of the people whose shoes they're attempting to fill. In fact, they're both smaller than their respective people whose shoes they're trying to fill. And then you see this quick shot of um, of, of Kano uh, making their making their suits smaller. I will just throw out that altering men's suits is not easy. And mm. I also there's so many stories in which superheroes make their own costumes, and it's just laughable. Yeah. Like, can you imagine these guys generally like sitting there? With like sewing, sewing lycra on a machine can involve a lot of pulling and readjusting, or redoing tailored work like this. Like the the the, the various male writers of these superhero comics back in the day who had these characters sewing, they don't know how hard this shit is. These people yeah. don't have the skills to do that. But I also think it's yeah, it's a metaphor. The clothes don't fit. They have to change the clothes to right. fit them. Uh, it, it might be some. I mean, you know, I was thinking it might be a reference to like reboot. That, like, you know, we've got DC that is trying to basically, you know, bring its entire line back to the old, you know, some old status quo. It's like, you can't always do that. You can't always just jump into where things used to be. You know, time had not gone by. Yeah. My Um, thoughts around that would be a whole other podcast, though. Um, And then you um, mentioned uh, Brock, Brock, you know, being upset with Wariana about break, breaking the bro code of arching, like her interfering in somebody else's pissing on each other fight, basically. Yeah, you know, and I mean, especially it wasn't much of a fight. It was just like two guys throwing their arms out and pumping their chest. It was um, really boring. So, you know, yeah, so, you know, clearly there's, you know, there's also in addition to sort of, uh, you know, the whole superhero code that like, you know, a fight is supposed to be between two people, and, you know, if you throw in a third, it just confuses the action. But, you know, there's also a gender thing, which is, like, they're not really fighting. They're doing what guys do, which is pretending like they're fighting and trying to get people to actually hold them back, and she is far more practical and just clocks someone in the back of the head. Yep. Getting shit done. uh, Exactly. So, speaking of family and legacy, you know, this Blue Morpho thing, I, we were going on and on about it, you know, at some length. But there were a couple of things that I, I wanted to make sure we talked about. One is the monarch is angry that he wasn't in his dad's comic. And that is a big difference between him and Rusty. That mm-hmm. Rusty, you know, Rusty was the the boy, you know, the boy adventurer. He was... Yeah, he was in the very much in the center West. of his dad's marketing. 
And yeah. I mean, it's specifically something the monarch says he's upset about in this episode is that he wasn't even in his dad's comic. Yeah, he was not Robin to, to his dad's Batman. Another thing that was interesting is that Rusty, you know, Billy Quizboy, drugged out of his mind, confuses uh, the monarch for Rusty, which, you know, is obviously playing on this whole thing that they might be brothers, and I have something to say about that in a second. But it's interesting, Rusty seems to recognize the blue morpho, and we're not exactly sure where from. And this is I interesting that. I just assume that it's because Billy Quizboy is a real comics nerd and he happened to see all six issues of the Jack Kirby-drawn Blue Morpho comic. Sure, but, you know, the, uh, sorry, what I was getting at was like, okay, Billy, out of his mind on drugs, thinks that Rusty is the Blue Morpho. But what I'm interested in is that Dr. Venture, who does not get hit by the gas, recognizes the Blue Morpho and... You know, I'm really curious about, like, where does he know the Blue Morpho from? I mean, yeah, granted, like, he was a kid for all of this stuff. He was yeah, around, exactly. you know, when his dad met the Blue Morpho and, and fought L. Ron Hubbard together. But, you know, given how much, like, the Blue Morpho is tied in with the whole question about Rusty and um, and the Monarch's, like, origin story, essentially... Like, how well does he know the Blue Morpho? Does he know what happened to the Blue Morpho? You know, who was responsible for the plane crash and so on and so forth. So I, I wanted to share another theory because I've, I've had this in the back of my mind. Now that we know that, like, it's very much confirmed at this point that the Blue Morpho and Jonas, you know, used to swing. Um, you know, a lot of people have been thinking, okay, both the Monarch and Rusty have red hair. You know, maybe, you know, Jonas is the monarch's dad as well, that they're half-brothers. But I was wondering, you know, if you look at their face, the shape of their faces, mm -hmm. neither of them resemble Dr. Jonas Venture. Like, no, J.J. did. He had that same Batman square jaw. animated series jaw. Yeah, the square but, jaw. Both of them have the, narrow the more narrow chin of the Blue Morpho. And the big pointy nose. He has uh, a big pointy nose. Let me look at that. Yeah, and and uh, when we saw Vendetta, you know, the, the cyborg, he kind of had that nose thing going on and the chin thing going on. So maybe Rusty isn't actually a venture. Right, they're both Maybe, maybe he's a Morpho. Well, I'm looking at Blue Morpho right now, and, like, Morpho's jaw is squarer than theirs, but... It yeah. is less square than Jonas Ventures. But look at Jonas Ventures has the most square jaw of all time. Um, yeah, but Google Vendetta. Okay, Vendetta. I mean, you've been right so far on all these various theories, by the way. Yeah. Um, I got my on the bowl. Vendetta's face shape is yeah. Vendetta's face shape, I think, could be Blue Morpho. But um, right. I, I don't see a nose similarity between Blue Morpho and um, his potential sons. That's not to say yeah, that, we'll that your theory may not be this. true. I think your theory could be true. I just don't necessarily think that a facial similarity is necessarily where it lies. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's true. And also, you know, if you look at the photo of uh, Rusty and um, the monarch from season five, if the mom it's um uh specifically uh, uh who looks to be um uh, sorry who looks to be the blue morpho's wife who has bright red hair so You'll have to send me that picture from, i don't i don't remember her at all yeah i'll shoot it to you right now and you know the other thing is kind of interesting is like there's this whole ongoing thing about uh mothers we still don't know who Dean and Hank's mom is. We don't know who Rusty's mom is. You know, Rust, uh, Jonas Venture Sr. has always been shown as a bachelor. So there's like a whole, you know, matrilineal side that is kind of, you know, still unknown. Hmm. Okay, I sent you the photo of the photo. I'm looking at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is very interesting. 
Um, no, it's true. I mean, the show is very deliberately absent with its mothers. And when you interview the creators about it, they're all like, oh, it's because if women were there, people would be more competent. And I am kind of like tired of that framing. Um, but uh, hmm. I think that the show will eventually come around to talking about it explicitly. And this might be how that happens. I hope so. You know, because, like, you know, enough of this Disney bullshit. You know, no more dead moms. Um, yeah. You know. So, uh, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about sexuality for a little bit. So, uh, Hank wants to learn how to mack on the ladies. <laughs> um, I love that presumably because... guess he goes to Dean. Like, that's just, that that shows you how much this kid needs more friends. Like, you're knowingly well, going that, to your brother, who is as inexperienced that, as you are. he goes to his dad. Right, and, right, and gets yeah. Pam, you know, pamphlets on chlamydia. Chlamydia. These um, are probably 60 so, pamphlets know, on chlamydia, in fact, I would imagine. Right. And, you know, I think part of the problem here is basically that, you know, Hank mind-wiped himself the first time he actually had sex, so he doesn't remember how he did it. Um, but, you know, Brock's unresolved issues with Floriana make him less than the best teacher because he's clearly uh, angry, you know, distracted. And frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about Brock's terrifying kissing lessons? Yes. Oh, my God. So, yeah. so you know, when Brock is trying to explain, like, how to lean in to kiss a girl in the show, the the camera goes and, like, you, it, it acts like the, the camera becomes the face that Brock is leaning in to kiss. And it has his head gets larger and approaches the camera, as it were. I swear, I moved back in the couch. I'm, like, squirming away. I'm like, oh, God, it's terrifying. I don't mm. – it was just – not it was just not the face that you wanted to have coming at you in that one way. I, I I thought that they were trying to like make you uncomfortable and they nailed it. Yeah. Well, you know, clearly, and it's funny because it's not like he's an unattractive character, but it's just the way they were doing it in that scene. It was like really painfully yeah. awkward, and I thought that, that was, I don't know, like that was like totally the right way to go for it. I, I it was it was yeah. painful. It, it was painful. So speaking of of you know kind of painful issues. Um, you know, I, what I really liked in this episode was like that Brock finally just, you know, like comes clean about what he's into, uh, with Boriana that like he, he, he is into her being a like strong woman. He he said that in the first episode of the season yeah, and like, he wants her to dominate him. And that's something that he's never quite, uh, it's, but it's, you know, it's true, but it's also both in both cases. These are things that she only feels like he's able to say because he's in an altered state. Like in the first case, he has the time he's got the lasso of truth, and then now he's like drugged. So like that's that's how sublimated this shit is. And it's interesting because we've already talked about like you know all of the women who he's been really interested in have all been like super strong and tough women. Like even the woman from the space station in like the first season. Um, like he's, yeah. Right. He's like wrestling her basically. So this is yeah, definitely I mean, his thing. Yeah, it's it's very much his thing. I mean, you look at the the, the sequence between him and uh, Molotov Cocktees the first time when they were in the the hotel room. Like he's into the violence part of it. He's really into the violence part of it. But he's always before been with very conventional, you know, conventionally attractive women. Except for the from that episode where they're in the jungle with the Dr. Quim medicine woman one. Right, but there the like the joke was that he was not into this woman. Right. That he wasn't into her. You know, That's what it was. You're right. Yeah. So it's you know it's it's I'm looking forward to this. I think this could be really interesting to like. And I, I the the animation of him walking up to the building using the body of the doorman to beat on her door is like fantastic. Yeah. Like I need a gif of that because that that's just a wonderful bit of animation. Um, and, yeah. I, you know, one of the things else with Boreana is she, the actress, she has two different voices. Like her voice when she answers the door is not the same mm -hmm. as the voice that she has when she slips into her role to say, like, all the horrible things she's going to do to him. So I thought that was right. an interesting choice as well. And, you know, for folks who don't know, and apparently some folks don't know, the creators, plural, of Wonder Woman are William Moulton Marston and Elizabeth Holloway Marston and probably their partner, Olive Byrne. Um, I mean, the roots of Wonder Woman were like from a ideology that believed that women were superior to men. Like this is like right. before feminism was in its current form. Like, you know, it's very easy to argue like that this particular philosophy is actually not very helpful for women. If you go and say that women are better than men because it puts us on a pedestal, 
But um, that was his philosophy. And they, her, their whole relationship with the three, the three creators of Wonder Woman was like really, they were like really into like bondage and stuff like that. And that is very explicitly in the Golden Age uh, Wonder Woman right. comics. So this is all yeah. baked I mean, into the character. Specifically, the idea that like you know the world would be better off. Like part of the whole idea about like why women are superior and you know things would be better if they were in charge is this whole idea of like learning to submit and be comfortable with you know power relationships. And you know Wonder Woman is like her whole thing is she's got a lasso. She ties people up. But also in the early comics, especially, she is constantly getting tied up. Like it is. Yeah. Just a giant bondage fest. And she like always frees herself and talks about how easy it was for her to free herself. Like that's so yeah, I mean this is basically like Wonder Woman as done by people who've definitely been paying attention. Right. Um and then, you know, uh the the Freudian horror of like the monarch confronting his dad's sex tapes. Yeah. Uh, and you know, his his response is that's not my mommy. Which is a good thing, because wouldn't it be worse if it was? Yeah, I mean, it definitely would be. I mean, I don't know. Is, I guess it depends who you are. I think it'd be worse well, if it like, was. But that would be a very, that is a very childlike response, though. Yes, like, absolutely. It's not just the you whole thing, and my parents yeah. having sex. It's like, whoa, what the, like, my dad was cheating on my mom, or, like, my dad had, like, a sexual life that, you know, I was not aware of, slash, you know. Wouldn't want, want to, to have be okay that. with. Yeah, you know, I actually just want to throw this out to our listeners. There have been a number of points we were talking about where I was like, I would love if there was somebody who knew a lot about Freud to like come on and join us for an episode because I think that like we are not experts on Freud stuff. There's like so much Freud shit in here; it would be a lot of fun. So uh, contact us on the Twitters or what have you if you are listening to this and you are a Freud geek. Um, but yeah, like I, it's the second, the second that twenty one is like you don't want to watch the rest of this. I knew what was happening next, and it's right. just so like slow motion shouting, stop, no, look away. And twenty five is, I'm sorry, who's the dead guy's name again? Twenty four. Twenty four. Thank you. And twenty four is saying like, no, he wants to know because it's the all like you want to know, you don't want to know dynamic. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I and mean, it's interesting because, like, Rusty's whole uh, situation with his father is incredibly explicitly Freudian. Like, he's got yes. that whole recurring nightmare about, like, seeing his dad's dick fall out of his boxers. Um, but, you know, we, in part because, you know, the monarch was orphaned at such a young age, like, he doesn't really seem to have much of a family... Uh, you know, kind of a Freudian sensibility, you know, besides, you know, his his attachment to his monarch family. Yeah, he's in a very weird state for that reason. He doesn't have the normal familial attachments. I think that's one of yeah. the reasons why he's, like, so happy to have, like, his relationship with 21 as well, is, like, he was so alone as a kid. Yeah, you know, and very much as someone who seems to have, uh, you know, because, like, I remember early on when he talked about, like, what happened with his family, like, he used to treat their death as, like, a punt, as a throwaway line. Like, he was like, oh, well, I got a sweet inheritance. You know, the trust fund came through, and then I went to university, where clearly he, like, had some sort of conflict with Rusty in a creative writing class. Um, that seemed to have started off their, uh, you know, their arching relationship. Um, but, you know, I'm I'm really hoping that, like, we get a sense of, you know, he's, he's living in his parents, he's moved back home, basically, you know, yeah. and hopefully starting to have a sense of himself as, like, someone who has a family or had a family. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big theme this season. Um, and then finally, you know, failure, we've already talked a lot about this, but like the two big things is like this science now convention seems like a giant, you know, failure waiting to happen. Like every time that Rusty has like done a presentation of a product, it's always gone wrong. And, you know, he's, 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 he is going to be, you know, selling a, uh, you know, a hallucinogenic. That's not going to be good. No, it's all going to go to hell. 
Uh, and then, you know, the other thing seems to be like the monarch's marriage is like really falling apart. Yeah, I, I'm i worried about them. The fact, like the, the, the whole bit that happened after the credits where um, she comes home uh, he, he, they come home and he sees that his, that his wife is there and she asks if they were just on on a date because he was jealous that she wasn't there. She was at a meeting. And when she like takes her suitcase and like sadly oh, trudges up the stairs and his response with 21 is to high five each other because they got away with their exploit. That is a yeah. bad sign. That's like the biggest yeah, relationship and- red flag. And it was interesting, like, I was getting a whole madman vibe throughout this whole episode. It's like, hmm. you know, it's her leaving for work, going into the city or going into the asteroid. You know, she's got the uniform and the suitcase, the roller suitcase. You know, it's a commuter. Like, you know, she's commuting to her job, and he is essentially the house husband who's, like, in his bathrobe, you know, losing his mind, basically. Um and, like, you know, basically passively, aggressively nags her about, like, you know, she's skipping out on date night. She feels bad about that, so she, you know, cuts her workday short to go back home to try to reconnect this marriage. And, like, you know, 21 has become the other woman, essentially. Like, especially with this whole ongoing thing about, you know, them tangoing together. Yeah, that's definitely a good way to frame it. Um, I mean, he, he just doesn't. He he's completely ruining his relationship and has no compre- and and it's just not a priority for him. Like he does not give a fuck. And, yeah. And, and Doctor Mrs. The Monarch, the fact that she left her work thing early to come home just to make him happy, that's really unprofessional. Like this isn't like oh my partner has the flu and I need to take care of them. This is like my partner is pouting because I had to cancel on date night. So she's already putting his needs over her own career by having come home early. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I think, you know, honestly, at this point, you know, if it wasn't clear before that it's like in some ways they'd be kind of, you know, as much as we like them as like this, you know, unlikely, you know, nerd couple or whatever, like they've got some like huge issues that they're, they are not communicating about at all. And yeah, at this point, I like, think... I, I want them to fight. Like, I want them to have this out and actually talk about it. Yeah, no, they are absolutely going to fight, and I think we should take bets on whether or not they're going to split at the end of the season. Uh, Well, I've got, you know, I already have my theory out there, so I'll put a dollar on that one. What's your theory? That you think they will? Uh, Well, but also the the love triangle with the, the secret identity thing. Oh, right. Yeah, that was a cool idea. For those who haven't heard this before, that you thought that there might be a... Well, I think in some ways the love triangle is between him and his secret identity. Right. But, you know, it like you know, there's a whole running gag in comics about, like, the the partner uh, falling in love with the secret identity instead of the, the hero. Right. Yeah, like in Superman and in Gem and the holograms, etc. Um, right. Yeah, so that too... Hopefully with less gaslighting. Seriously. And but also less eighties music videos. So it could be more like Jim and the Holograms. That could be that would be better. <laughs> okay, well I think that's as good a plot as any to, to leave it off. One last thing, one of our listeners um tweeted us an image saying Buki Chan credits uh an someone on called Kiki Cannon on Facebook who points out that there actually is a music reference to Billy Idol in this issue because oh, the idol, okay. the Sumerian idol that their mice oh. are praying to is an idol of Billy. Oh, that's a horrible pun. I love it. It's so good, right? I can't believe I didn't catch it. It's so good. Hmm. So thank you, Kiki Cannon and Chandra Free. Uh, so, Alana, well. where can we find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn and Tumblr as E-L-A-N-A Brooklyn. And Graphic Policy is at Graphic Policy on Tumblr, GraphicPolicy.com on the web, Graphic Policy on Twitter. So much Graphic Policy. Uh, We are going to have another episode on Monday. I think that they're interviewing an independent comics creator um, who does the comic Bounce. 
And I'm not going to be cool. on it because I'm I can't be there next week. But uh, and you'll be on Wednesday again with Venture Brothers, yep. but without me. Which I take yes. to be as a sign. So next week is the week that the Venture Brothers are going to have an episode that consists like entirely of 80s goth references, just because I won't be there to clear them up for people. I'm kind of terrified about that being the case. Like, if it's comic books, I can do it. But, like, if they go into a music-heavy episode, I'm just going to be, like, flailing and desperately texting you and be like, what is going on? I don't understand this. No, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be the episode that you needed me most for. That's going to be the one I'm not going to be there for. So have fun looking up the Cleopatra Collection box set on uh, YouTube (laughs) and acquainting yourself with the greatest hit works of Joy Division. And uh, I'll see you soon after that. Oh, and Stephen, where can you – Hold on. I'm sorry. Yes, sorry, where can I be found? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I am uh, at Stephen Atwell on Twitter. Uh, you can find my work on Game of Thrones at Race for the Iron Throne. Uh, I blog uh, at uh, lawyersgunsandmoney.com. Uh, I also am doing a regular uh, series on graphic policy, People's History of the Marvel Universe, a new issue of which will be up uh, tomorrow, in fact. Yay! Uh, and this week we're talking about Captain America dealing with the 60s. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's so good. This is a great column for folks who want to learn more about comics and history and stuff like that. So thank you again for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. As Brett would Bye. say, keep it, keep it geeky.